Romans chapter 1. Heavenly Father, we do pray again that you would just bless this time together tonight. We're taking up a controversial topic here this evening. And Lord, we're thankful that you haven't left us in the dark regarding this topic, Lord. But your word does speak uh, clearly about it. And we pray as we consider the scriptures tonight, Lord, that your spirit would just illuminate the text for us. Uh, that we might walk away here tonight having a clear understanding of its bearing on our lives. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, as you know, because I hear you guys have just started going through the book of Romans, in the first three chapters here in this letter of Paul to the Christians in the city of Rome, Paul lays out a case that all humanity, Jews and Gentiles alike, have sinned and are in need of God's forgiveness. Well, here in chapter 1, speaking specifically of Gentiles who have turned their backs on the testimony of creation that bears testimony to the fact that God exists, Paul, speaking of them in verse 24, says, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their heir. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. For 2,000 years, Christians have rightly understood this passage here in Romans chapter 1 and several others in the Bible to explicitly place same-gender sexual activity outside the boundaries of God's will. And for a very long time, many in the culture were generally in agreement with this position. But as you know, over the past 20 years, there has been an enormous shift in Americans' views on homosexuality. Studies and surveys have shown that a large and growing portion of society now looks at same-gender sexual relationships favorably. And as a result, the traditional view, the biblical view, the view held by Jews and Christians for 2,000 plus years is attracting more and more criticism. People, including many Christians, are saying things like, well, homosexuals were born that way. How can it be wrong for them to fulfill desires they were born with? Or uh, Jesus never said a word about homosexual activity. If it, was a, if it was sinful or even that important to God, he surely would have addressed it. 
Or they say, well, what two consenting adults do is their business. They're not hurting anybody. And Jesus said not to judge. Or how about this one? You Christians ignore Old Testament laws forbidding the eating of shellfish and pork. Why do you inconsistently cling to its stance on homosexuality? Have you heard or read any of these kinds of objections? I'm sure most of you have. Well, this evening, I'd like to lovingly respond to these kinds of questions and objections with the hope that doing so will help give you a better understanding of what the Bible teaches on this topic and that our time together will help equip you with some ways that you can answer these objections yourself. The first objection I'd like to address this evening is this one. Who are you Christians to even say homosexual behavior is wrong? Who are you Christians to even say homosexual behavior is wrong? Well, to answer the question concisely, nobody. We're nobody. Christians don't claim to have any authority to set the rules or laws governing the universe. But we do know the king who does get to set the rules, God. And this king, our maker, has given mankind specific instructions for how we should conduct our lives. And after lovingly creating marriage and the blessing that an intimate physical relationship can be, he also prohibited every form of sexual activity outside the sacred covenant of heterosexual marriage. Marriage between one man and one woman. That includes adultery, fornication, bestiality, incest, and same-gender sexual activity. Well, our friends, if you want to quote the Bible, Charlie, Jesus said to love people, even your enemies. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, Christians' rejection of homosexuals is downright hateful. This is, of course, a popular criticism that Christians are hearing today that we are hateful for our views on homosexual activity. Well, in response to that, our view towards same-gender sexual behavior should not be viewed or understood to mean that Christians reject or hate the persons engaging in that behavior. As many of you know, I have five kids at home, and I view some of their behavior unfavorably. And I even tell them that occasionally. I'll tell them, I'll say, what you're doing is sinful. That behavior is not pleasing to God. Question for you, does that mean that I hate them? Absolutely not. I actually tell them that because I love them. That's why I speak the truth to them. Disagreeing with a person over an activity does not equal hatred. If disagreeing equaled hatred, our critics would be guilty of the very behavior they accuse Christians of, hatred, because they disagree with us. 
So we, I think it's important that we distinguish between the person and the practice. It's only same gender sexual activity we are opposed to, not homosexuals as persons. The Bible instructs Christians to be kind to all. That's how we're to treat people caught up in any kind of sin. We're to be kind to them. We're to be compassionate with them as we ourselves desire to be treated. But that doesn't mean we have to endorse or approve of that person's behavior. Isaiah chapter 5 verse 20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. All right, another popular objection we're hearing today concerns the charge of bigotry. People say, well, Christians who are opposed to homosexuality and same-sex marriage are bigots. I'm sure you've heard the word tossed around in conversations on this topic. Let's consider the charge then. First, what is a bigot? Well, the new Oxford American Dictionary defines a bigot as a person who is intolerant toward those holding different opinions. A person who's intolerant towards those holding different opinions. Very well, then what's tolerance? Well, tolerance is the ability or willingness to tolerate something, in particular, the existence of opinions or behavior that one does not necessarily agree with. Notice that. Tolerance does not mean agreeing with a person's behavior. Let's read it again. It's the ability or willingness to tolerate something, in particular, the existence of opinions or behavior that one does not necessarily agree with. So follow me here. If a bigot is someone who is intolerant, that means a bigot does not have the ability or willingness to tolerate the existence of opinions or behavior that he or she doesn't agree with. Is that what Christians are guilty of? Are Christians unwilling to tolerate the existence of opinions or behavior we don't agree with? Are Christians imprisoning and killing people who have different opinions than us? Are Christians seeking to stamp out people with different opinions? I don't see that happening. Oh, there have been some people who've claimed they were Christians, who've engaged in that kind of behavior, but they were acting contrary to the teachings of Jesus. Perhaps you'll recall Jesus' interaction with his disciples, James and John, in Luke chapter 9. In Luke chapter 9, a village of Samaritans had turned Jesus away as he was passing through on his way to Jerusalem. And when James and John, two of the 12 disciples, saw this rejection of Jesus, they said to Jesus in Luke 9 verse 54, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Wow. <laughs> As you can tell, Jesus still had some work to do with these two. But uh, what was Jesus' response to this expression of intolerance? That's intolerance. Incinerating the city, that's intolerant. <laughs> what was Jesus' reaction to this expression? Well, in the very next verse... Verse 55, it says that Jesus turned and rebuked them. 
he rebuked them. Now, Christians, having learned from this and other instructions in the New Testament, know that we are to live peaceably with all men, even people who we have fervent disagreements with, whether it be politically or religiously or over some other uh, issue. Romans chapter 12 says, so far as it depends on you, you Christian, live peaceably with all. And that would include our homosexual friends and neighbors and coworkers and, and so on. So as Christians walk in the teachings of the New Testament, the charge of bigotry is misplaced. It just does not properly apply. It doesn't accurately describe a true follower of Jesus. Well, then, Christians are certainly homophobic. I'm sure you've heard this charge as well. So let's consider it. You know what a phobia is. It's an extreme or irrational fear of or aversion to something. Now, I'm sure there are some Christians who get a little nervous or fearful around someone that they know is attracted to people of the same sex. Just like some of our non-Christian and homosexual friends might get a little nervous or fearful coming to church and being around Christians. But the Christians I've talked to in churches all over North America over the past year as I've been uh, teaching on this topic in different settings, none of these Christians seem to have any phobias of people who would classify themselves as gays or lesbians. Why not the phobia? Well, because there's no need to fear them and oftentimes because we know them. These people are part of our extended family. They're our neighbors and co-workers, and we love these people. They're human beings made in the image of God, and God doesn't want us to fear people even if they posed some sort of threat to us. In Luke chapter 12, verse 4, Jesus said, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. So we're not to fear interacting with people. Uh, Phobias and the fear of man have no place in the life of the follower of Christ. Well, our friend says, uh, in John chapter 7, verse 24, Jesus said, do not judge, and yet you Christians persist in casting judgment, saying homosexual activity is wrong. If there's one bit of instruction every person in the world seems to know Jesus said, it's his instructions here. In John chapter 7, verse 24, to not judge. I do find it a bit ironic that people who oftentimes don't even trust the Bible still occasionally like to quote it uh, when it can lend support to the point they want to make anyway. But they are overlooking the second half of the verse in John chapter 7. Notice what the verse actually says in context. We'll read the whole thing. He says, do not judge. Is there a period after that word? No, he's not done. He says, do not judge according to appearance, but what? He, he actually says to judge? In the very verse that people quote telling us not to judge because Jesus said it? Yes. That's mishandling the Bible. 
He says, but judge with righteous judgment. Well, that raises the question, how do we do that? How do we make right judgments about whether or not a particular behavior is right or wrong? Well, God would have us to examine his word and then carefully align our view, our beliefs, our assessment of that behavior with what he has to say regarding the matter. And God has revealed to us in the scriptures that same gender sexual activity is an abomination, detestable, degrading, contrary to nature and shameful. And so we can rightly conclude and say the same things about that activity. That would be a right judgment. Now, of course, when we talk about the sinfulness of same gender sexual activity, we need to do so with humility, knowing that we ourselves are guilty of detestable, shameful sins as well. You may not have struggled with or engaged in homosexual activity, but you've struggled with your own sins as I have, as we all have. So being able to make a right judgment about a particular activity does not then give us a green light to be judgmental, hypercritical, or to take pleasure in declaring these judgments. We need to talk to people with compassion with gentleness and with with love and mercy that they might find our God attractive because he is attractive. He's a gracious and merciful and forgiving God and he can forgive them of their sins just like he forgave you and me of our sins as well. All right, let's consider another common objection to the Christian view of homosexuality. It's all over the place on the internet, perhaps you've bumped into it. People say, you Christians ignore Old Testament laws forbidding the eating of pork and shellfish and wearing clothing of mixed fibers. It's blatantly inconsistent for you to cling to its stance on homosexuality. Well, in response, it's not inconsistent at all. Those who raise this objection overlook the fact that certain regulations and laws in the Old Testament regarding diet, the blending of fabrics, holy days and feasts, the priesthood, the tabernacle and later temple were given solely to the children of Israel, not to humanity at large. Certain regulations were never intended to govern nations other than Israel and were therefore never binding on Gentile nations. There is not a single instance in the Bible of God's displeasure or judgment coming down on a foreign nation for disobeying Old Testament dietary regulations or laws governing temple sacrifice or the priesthood. We never read of an Egyptian, an Assyrian, or a Moabite being condemned for missing Passover or eating shellfish. And with the coming of the Messiah, God has repealed certain regulations and laws governing diet, Israel's temple worship, and sacrificial system. For example, Jesus declared all foods clean in Mark chapter 7, verse 19. 
Luke talks about this as well in Acts chapter 10, verse 15. We're told in Romans chapter 14 and elsewhere that holy days, the feasts, have now been rendered optional. They are not binding even on Jews living under the new covenant. Uh, We're told that the entire sacrificial system centered around the temple with priests and sacrifices has been superseded. The author of the book of Hebrews talks about this. So why, that raises the question, why no more sacrifices? Why no more temple? Well, because they're not necessary. Jesus was humanity's once for all final sacrifice for sins. With his death, God tore the curtain open in the temple, signifying a new way of relating to him that no longer involves daily sacrifices, the temple, the priesthood, and so on. Hebrews chapter 8 through 10 and Galatians chapter 3 make that clear. So those are a couple of the reasons why we are at liberty today to eat shellfish and pork. Certain regulations were never binding on Gentile nations and with Jesus' coming, we are now living under a new covenant wherein Jesus declared all foods uh, to be clean. Well, our friend says, if certain laws and regulations in the Old Testament are no longer binding, then it's pretty safe to conclude the Old Testament's prohibition against same-gender sexual activity is no longer binding either. More and more Christians who are caving to cultural pressure to conform on this issue are saying what our friend says here on the screen. But, Friends, it is a mistake to conclude this. Why is that? Well, for starters, the Old Testament laws forbidding same-gender sexual activity, adultery, stealing, murder, incest, and other activities were never repealed by Jesus in the New Testament. And, in fact, they are reaffirmed and restated in the New Testament. Adultery, incest, polygamy, murder, stealing, and homosexual activity are all still sins in the New Testament. And unlike the dietary laws and instructions governing the Jewish temple, these laws were never limited to the children of Israel to begin with. God actually held the surrounding non-Jewish nations accountable for engaging in these activities. In fact, God says in the book of Leviticus chapter 18 that one of the reasons judgment was coming upon the land of Canaan was because the Canaanites, these these Gentiles living north of Egypt there, had defiled themselves with adultery, bestiality, and, God says, homosexual activity. Notice what God says to the Israelites. I'll put it on the screen for you. Leviticus chapter 18, verse 20 and following. God speaking, he says, you shall not have intercourse with, with your neighbor's wife to be defiled with her. You shall not give any of your offspring to offer them to Molech, nor shall you profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Here it is, verse 22. You shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination. Also, you shall not have intercourse with any animal to be defiled with it, nor shall any woman stand before an animal to mate with it. It is a perversion. Do 
not defile yourselves by any of these things for by all these, these different activities that God just laid out, he says, by all of these, the nations which I am casting out before you have become defiled for the land has become defiled. Therefore, I have brought its punishment upon it. So the land has spewed out its inhabitants. God says here, that the nations in Canaan were coming under his judgment for engaging in these activities, which, as you saw there in verse 22, included homosexual activity. So for these reasons, it would be a mistake to conclude that God's will regarding homosexual behavior was limited solely to the nation of Israel and has no bearing on our lives today. Well, our friend says, Jesus never said a word about homosexual activity. If it was sinful or even important to God, he surely would have addressed it. Well, there are a few problems with this conclusion. First, the Gospels don't record any specific instruction of Jesus on a lot of things we know to be wrong. Bestiality, rape, and incest, for example. Jesus may have discussed those behaviors. The Gospels don't record for us everything he said. But we don't take the lack of recorded instruction on these issues to mean those behaviors are okay for they are condemned elsewhere in the Bible. Secondly, Jesus affirmed the authority and trustworthiness of the Old Testament scriptures where homosexual activity is clearly condemned. Jesus always held or upheld the integrity, the reliability, and the trustworthiness of the Old Testament. He quoted it numerous times because he believed that the Old Testament was authoritative. Thirdly, in Matthew chapter 19, verses 4 through 6, Jesus explicitly reaffirmed the Genesis account of marriage that describes marriage as the one flesh union of one man and one woman. And fourthly, Jesus condemned the sin of pornea, a Greek word that encompassed every kind of sexual sin. Where did he condemn pornea? In Matthew chapter 15, verse 19. Notice the verse. I'll put it here on the screen for you. Jesus said, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality. Those two English words come from the Greek word pornea. Okay, so pornea is condemned there. He he goes on to say theft, false witness, slander. These, Jesus says, are what defile a person. Now, that word pornea can be found in ancient Greek literature with reference to a variety of illicit sexual practices, including adultery, fornication, prostitution, and homosexual activity. And Jesus said here, in Matthew 15 verse 20 that these defile a person in God's sight. So this objection that Jesus never said anything about homosexuality uh, completely falters as a way of justifying homosexual activity. But Charlie, what two consenting homosexuals do in the privacy of their bedroom isn't hurting anyone. Well, it might appear that way, but this objection overlooks the fact that anything our loving creator has deemed sinful actually hurts the person who commits the sin. 
Not to mention family members and friends who love that person. How is a person hurt by engaging in sexual sin? Well, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18, that the immoral man, speaking of sexually immorality, he says the immoral man sins against who? His own body. And this is certainly proven to be the case. Multiple studies have shown that people engaging in homosexual activity often have much higher instances of depression, suicide, substance abuse, and sexually transmitted diseases. But in addition to all of this, all sin injures the most important relationship in that person's life, and that is his relationship with his maker. How so? Well, sin separates a person from God. It obscures fellowship with him. Isaiah 59 verse 2 says, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. So it's wrong for a person to think that he can continue in sin and nobody is being hurt by his actions. He's hurting himself and our sin hurts God in that it grieves him. And the Bible tells us in Ephesians 4 and elsewhere that we're not to grieve our maker. We're not to grieve the Holy Spirit, the Bible says. All right, let's consider another objection. People say, well, homosexuals were born that way. It certainly can't be wrong for them to fulfill their desires. This is the most common objection to the Bible's teaching on homosexuality. People insist that most of those who engage in homosexual activity were born with same-sex attraction. And if that is the case, well, then God made them that way and he surely wouldn't expect them to abstain from fulfilling those desires. Well, there are some problems with this conclusion. First, the claim that homosexuality can be tied to a fixed hereditary or biological trait cannot be supported by the scientific evidence. Multiple studies have affirmed this. I won't bog you down tonight with a bunch of quotes supporting this, but I will read one. Notice this, a 2015 statement by the American Psychological Association on their website says there is no consensus among scientists about the exact reasons that an individual develops a heterosexual, bisexual, gay, or lesbian orientation. Although much research has examined the possible genetic, hormonal, developmental, social, and cultural influences on sexual orientation, no findings have emerged that permit scientists to conclude that sexual orientation is determined by any particular factor or factors, end quote. Was this published by a religious organization seeking to disprove the born that way theory? No, no. This is a statement from the American Psychological Association who states on their website that they're actively seeking to end prejudice and discrimination against homosexuals and they themselves acknowledge that no findings 
have emerged which permit scientists to conclude that sexual orientation is determined by any particular factor or factors. One of the evidences that homosexual orientation is not genetically fixed at birth comes from the studies of identical twins, like these two here on the screen. Identical twins have identical genes, and yet studies have shown when one of the twins identifies as a homosexual, only 5 to 11% of the time does the other twin identify as a homosexual. Well, these findings greatly undermine the belief that people are born gay. But if homosexuality is not genetically fixed at birth, are we then to conclude that people just choose to be attracted to people of the same sex? No. No, they choose what they do with that attraction, but the great majority of people who have same-sex attractions, about 3% of the population, do not choose to have those feelings. They don't sit down before a smorgasbord of sexual lifestyle options one day and decide to be attracted to people of the same sex. Many homosexuals have testified uh, to how agonizing it was Oftentimes as a young person to find themselves attracted to people of the same gender. They were painfully aware that homosexual activity is not viewed favorably by a large portion of society. They realized their parents were probably going to be shocked and grieved. They realized they might never have a traditional family with children. And so many of them did not eagerly embrace those feelings and the majority of them kept and still do keep their desires to themselves, oftentimes for many years. And many of those who have gone public with their feelings assure us that they would never have chosen to feel that way about people of the same gender. And I believe them. And one of the reasons why I believe them is because even those who have turned their backs on homosexual activity and who are now born-again, Bible-believing, Jesus-loving Christians tell me the same thing. They say, we did not choose to be attracted to people of the same gender. We just found ourselves with those Desires. I've heard that from Christians all over the country. So then that raises the question, how do people end up with same gender attraction? If it's not controlled by genetics and they didn't just choose to have those desires, how have they ended up with them? Well, there are often a combination of factors that lead a person in that direction. A former, homo, a, <clears throat> excuse me, a former homosexual and now author and counselor to people struggling with same-gender attraction summarizes some of the factors or developmental issues that can lead a person to assume a homosexual orientation. And I've excerpted this from his book. I think he provides a good bullet list or list of bullet points here. He says sexual violation or experimentation with people of the same sex, incest or molestation, exposure to pornography, negative spiritual influences, media influences, personality and temperament, negative body image, peer labeling, harassment or alienation, fear of or an inability to relate to the opposite sex and 
dysfunctional family relationships. He goes on to know that this last factor, dysfunctional family relationships, particularly broken relationships between fathers and their sons, is perhaps the most common factor found in the life of men who identify as homosexuals. But there on the screen is a summary of what current research demonstrates. Same-sex attraction is often the result of a combination of factors working in concert. But friends, the whole debate about whether same gender attraction is something people are born with or whether it's the result of how they were raised perhaps or some other factors, it really doesn't even matter in the end as far as giving someone a green light to act out on those desires. Why is that? Well, because even if a person is genetically disposed to some behavior or finds himself with very strong, persistent desires to do something that doesn't mean the behavior is morally right. We have all had a variety of persistent desires, even from a young age, to do things that are wrong. Whether it's to lie or steal or boast or fornicate. Ever had a long, persistent desire to fornicate? Or commit adultery? This is something that heterosexual Christians struggle with. Persistent sinful desires that go on for years just lurking in the human heart. Now because those desires are there though, it doesn't mean that it's morally right or permissible to indulge those desires. God has declared certain activities to be sinful and he's instructed us to not gratify Those desires, those sinful desires or urgings. In Romans chapter 13, verse 14, for example, it says, make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust or what 2 Peter 1, 4 calls sinful desires or 1 Timothy 6, 9, harmful desires. So note that the Bible does acknowledge the existence of strong, persistent desires in the human heart. But God says some of those desires are harmful. Some of those desires that are there are sinful. So we're not to just give in to those desires and then excuse our behavior and say, well, I was born that way. Or that's my orientation or I've had these desires as long as I can remember. They must be okay. No, God's will is for us to turn our back on those desires and not indulge them. Well, how do we do that? Well, Galatians chapter 5. Verse 16, it says, walk by the Spirit. In other words, live by the power of the Holy Spirit and what? You will not gratify the desires of the flesh. When a person places their faith in Jesus Christ, he's born again, he's given a new heart, and he receives the Holy Spirit. As that follower of Jesus yields to the power of the Spirit, In his life, he can then live a victorious life, not gratifying the sinful desires of the flesh. What a great verse, Galatians chapter 5, verse 16 is. If you want to live a victorious Christian life that pleases God, walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. And the Bible says you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. 
All right, here's another objection that's become quite popular. Uh, people say, well, when Paul spoke of homos- homosexual activity in Romans chapter 1, he wasn't speaking of homosexuals or lesbians committed to one another and loving monogamous relationships. He was speaking of sensual homosexual acts that took place in idolatrous temples by sexually inflamed idol worshipers and, and such. He, he had in mind homosexual prostitution and pederasty. Men with boys. That's what Paul was really talking about. Well, we disagree with this assessment. Why is that? Well, first, there's nothing in the text that indicates Paul only had certain types of homosexual acts in mind. No, he just says, their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. As you'll note there, nowhere does Paul or any other biblical author single out certain types of homosexual activity and then excuse others. No, the activity is just plainly and broadly condemned. And as to the charge that Paul only had pederasty in mind, this is easily refuted by another brief look at the text. In verse 27, Paul said, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with, does he say boys? No, he says men. Had Paul only been referring to activity between men and boys, there were appropriate Greek words to communicate that. Secondly, if Paul was only condemning pederasty or homosexual activity done by idol worshipers, why wasn't a single Bible scholar or Bible commentator able to conclude that in the first 19 and a half centuries of church history? Not a single one of them came to that conclusion because there's nothing in the Bible to suggest that this is a correct way of interpreting the text here in Romans chapter 1. But Charlie, even if the Bible teaches that homosexual activity is wrong, why are so many Christians opposed to allowing two homosexuals to marry? Well, it has nothing to do with hating these people or viewing them unequally. We believe as Christians that everyone on the planet has the right and freedom to marry within the boundaries of God's will for marriage. Our opposition to same-sex marriage flows from our love for and allegiance to God and his instructions regarding marriage marriage. God's intention for marriage is laid out for us in Genesis chapter 2. What does it say there? Well, Jesus, who was in full agreement with what Genesis chapter 2 said, he actually quotes the passage in Matthew chapter 19. So notice what Jesus says. He says, have you not read haven't you read Genesis chapter two? That's, that's the passage he's pointing to. That he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, for this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. 
According to this passage and others, marriage is a lifelong union between one man and one woman. That's God's intention and that is God's design for marriage. That being the case, marriage is not an institution that we humans have the right to come along thousands of years later and reinvent And so when a handful of U.S. Supreme Court justices basically thumb their noses at God and say, we're going to do it another way, and then our president authorizes lighting up the White House on the same day with the colors of the gay pride flag, we don't celebrate. God forgive us if we did. We mourn for our country for having turned further away from God's instructions. Well, I see why Christians wouldn't celebrate the Supreme Court decision, perhaps. But I've heard some Christians say they wouldn't even attend a wedding ceremony for two people of the same sex. Why wouldn't they do that? Well, I and others would actually consider it unloving to attend. Why is that? Well, the Bible says that true love, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 6, does not rejoice in unrighteousness. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. It doesn't celebrate when something sinful is taking place. And because God has clearly declared homosexual activity to be unrighteous, we believe it would be unloving to attend a homosexual wedding and give our support. A homosexual wedding is joining two people in a sinful, unrighteous relationship that grieves their creator. That's certainly not something Christians should cheer on or rejoice in. In Romans chapter 1, after Paul lays out a long list of sinful activities, which as we saw earlier includes homosexual activity, there's a warning there at the end of chapter 1. You could spot it there in your Bible if you're still open there. In verse 32, to who? To those who give approval to those who practice those kinds of behaviors. There's a warning there to people who even come along and cheer. Some people say, well, no, I wouldn't ever marry you know, someone of the same sex. But I'm going to go to the wedding ceremony and cheer them. Romans chapter 1, verse 32. There's a warning there to those who give approval. And attendance at a wedding is almost universally viewed as giving approval of what's happening at the altar and those or and the life that those two persons intend to live. And so I think most Christians who want to honor the Lord and his instructions regarding marriage will decline an invitation uh, to attend a homosexual wedding. But Charlie, Jesus ate with sinners and tax collectors. Christians' refusal to attend a homosexual wedding seems un-Jesus-like. Well, in response to this, yes, Jesus did eat with sinners and tax collectors and we too are happy to eat a meal with the person caught up in some sin like Jesus we would consider it an opportunity to love on that person uh, minister to them and point them to the Lord but we're not going to participate in their sin with them Jesus never participated in a person's sin and we believe a same gender wedding ceremony is a sinful act of defiance against our creator 
Whether they know it or not, the officiator of the ceremony and the people making their vows are by their actions declaring, we don't care what God has to say about homosexuality or marriage. We're going to have a ceremony and celebrate the way we want to do it. So, though we love these people, most Christians believe we should not participate in a ceremony where God is being dishonored in this way. Well, Charlie, if God exists, why would he declare a behavior sinful that a person can't change? Lots of homosexuals have tried to change and they cannot. Well, the person who raises this sort of objection is usually unaware of the fact that there have been hundreds of thousands of people who have left homosexual activity behind and who are now enjoying normal heterosexual relations and families. Now, of course, we never hear about these people in the mainstream media or anything Hollywood puts out. But over the past year, as I've been researching and teaching on this issue, I've talked to dozens of these people. I've read some of their testimonies online. I've read some of their books. I've seen survey data. I've seen clinical research data. And it is clear, friends, that many people have left homosexual behavior behind and now consider themselves heterosexuals or they're practicing abstinence as they walk with the Lord. But I think it's important to point out to you that our goal as Christians is not to get homosexuals to abandon homosexuality and become heterosexuals. That's not our job. Our goal is simply pointing people to Jesus, sharing the gospel with them, and walking with them as the Holy Spirit transforms and changes their life. And it might seem impossible to some of them that, you know, to abandon that way of life and to live in accord with God's will for their lives, but this is the very kind of thing God can do and does do. In Luke chapter 18, verse 27, Jesus said, the things that are impossible with people are possible with God. God can change people. Right after Paul mentions practicing homosexuals in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, in the very next sentence, he says in verse 11, and such were some of you. Some of the Christian believers there in Corinth had previously been practicing homosexuals. He says, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. What a beautiful verse this is for people who don't think they can leave behind a certain way of life. Though the people in Corinth had previously been engaging in a variety of sins, including homosexual activity, when they entered into a relationship with our Savior, they were washed, they were sanctified, they were justified. That's exactly what happens today. When a person turns to the Lord, the guilt from their sins is washed away in God's sight. They're sanctified. That means that they're set apart as born again, redeemed children of God, and they are justified. That is declared righteous in God's sight. Friends, have you experienced that? Has the guilt from your sins been washed away? It can be. That's why Jesus, God in the flesh, died on that cruel wooden Roman cross. Because of his love for you, the Bible says he died there in your place, taking the punishment that you deserved for your sins so that you could be forgiven, 
so that you could be rescued from spending eternity in hell so that you could be brought back into a relationship with your creator and begin living a life pleasing to him. He rose from the grave three days later and today he's offering all humanity the free gift of forgiveness of sins, everlasting life to all those who will acknowledge Jesus as Lord. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord, the book of Romans says, shall be saved. If you need to get right with your maker tonight, whether you've struggled with homosexuality or fornication or whatever the sin, we've all struggled with dozens of different things. All of that can be dealt with here tonight if you'll call upon the name of the Lord. Those sins can be forgiven. So don't put it off if you need to call out to him. Do it tonight. Amen? Amen. Well, I am just about out of time. We're going to close here in prayer and I think the worship team is going to come out and we'll sing a final song. I want to quickly mention that we have this presentation pre-recorded on DVD. So if you'd like to go over uh, any of the things we talked about here tonight or pass one along to a friend who could use some encouragement or help with this topic. We've got some of those out at my resource table tonight. And then one other resource I'd like to briefly highlight is this little tiny uh, USB drive. Um, If you've stopped by my resource table over the years, um, you've seen some of our DVDs. We have 30 different DVDs out now on a variety of different topics related to the defense of the Christian faith. With technology now, though, just in the last year, we've been able to put all 30 of these DVDs onto this tiny little USB drive that's the size of a double A battery. You can stick the USB drive into the USB port on your television and pull up any of our videos that way, or uh, you can stick it into your uh, laptop and then transfer the videos to your iPad, uh, tablet, or smartphone and go through uh, the videos that way. So if you'd like to get further equipped, to contend for the faith that is under assault from every direction in this day and age that we live in, uh, there's some additional resources for you to, to consider. So let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you tonight, Lord, that you are a gracious and merciful God. Lord, uh, we're so thankful. We all deserve judgment and condemnation, but you've shown us grace and mercy. And Lord, we do thank you for that. And we thank you for your word tonight. The Bible is very clear on the sin of homosexuality, but it's also clear that you're a forgiving God who can rescue and redeem and transform, transform lives. And so God, we do pray tonight for our friends, our family members who are struggling with temptation in this area or even engaging in same gender sexual activity. God, we pray for their deliverance. We pray for their salvation if they're in need of that. And we pray for ourselves, God, that you would help us to love on them uh, and to show them compassion and understanding and to point them to Jesus. Use us to that end, we pray, in this generation. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you.